Hello, everybody. I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of the Project MedTech Podcast. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. If you're enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcasts by searching MedTech Money on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. MedTech Money is an interview-style podcast focused on demystifying raising and investing capital for MedTech startups. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Galen Data. Galen Data is the cloud for medical device makers. The Galen Cloud provides a configurable platform for device-to-cloud connectivity that is compliant to FDA, HIPAA, and CE Mark standards. Built on 40-plus years of collective experience, developing compliance systems in the medical device industry. The company's goal is to make medical device cloud connectivity available to all at a fraction of the cost while shaving months off the development timeline. In this episode, our guest, Jeremy Stakowitz, and I discuss his current pre-commercial diagnostic company he is leading, how to choose your first indication for use when you are a platform technology, what about the second and third indications, what led him to Senzo, his experience with raising capital, the importance of naming of the rounds, what it is like being brought in to lead a company when you are not a co-founder, and so much more. So without further ado, my discussion with Jeremy Stakowitz. Okay, Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Dwayne. Good to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's start off with um, who you are and 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 what you're working on at a high level now at Senzo, and then uh, I'd love to dive into some of your background as well. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Yeah, um, I'm the CEO of Senzo. Senzo's uh, an innovative in vitro diagnostics company. We've been around for about five years, really honing our technologies. Um, we are pre-commercial, but uh, are, are working on becoming fully commercial. And we've learned a lot over the years about how to bring diagnos- diagnostics closer to uh, individual patients and healthcare providers. And, and the main way to do that is to uh, create point-of-care technologies that have all the performance of the testing done in central labs. So I think there's broad, broad agreement that the more testing we can do at home in clinics in long-term care homes and pharmacies, the better. Uh, but but nobody um, wants to sacrifice any sort of test quality for that convenience. And so that's really been the trick is to to innovate and create technologies that match the performance, the great performance we get out of central lab testing, but make it in a, a more convenient, timely, efficient, less costly package. And and uh, many companies are working on that, but really happy that Senzo is kind of uh, leading that charge as well. And so some of our some of our platforms are more instrument based, um, but the one we're particularly excited about we we call Alf Amplified Lateral Flow. So it's it's the lateral flow test we've all come to know and love. Uh, Pre COVID, we mostly knew of them from pregnancy tests. Uh, but now we know them from all the all the great COVID testing we've had to do. And we look at that as an opportunity to say uh, these work really well for at-home use or professional use. Uh, they're easy to use. They're low cost. They're flexible. Um, but how can we 
how can we improve the performance of them so that they match those central lab tests? And so that's what we're working on. And we're, we're close with our first application, which is for COVID, but it's really a platform where we could take this into, you know, kind of, you name it, uh, antibacterial, antiviral, antifungal, uh, hospital infections, right? So you could screen people for C. diff or MRSA, or the school nurse can, can test your kid for, uh, for strep rather than sending out for a culture or in low resource areas, uh, testing for malaria and, uh, and tuberculosis. So very diverse platform, but really the hook is it's an under 10 minute test. And we've, we, we have a proprietary trick that allows us to have incredibly high sensitivity and specificity. And, and this is really something we've discovered in the last six, eight months. So it's almost a, it's a running, uh, case study and how you how you bring a new technology to market. How do you finance it? How do you partner? How do you build internally? So uh, a challenging but 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 fun project for for me and my team. Yeah, awesome. So um, so it's a platform technology. Um, I'm curious. Uh, well, and there's there's a COVID aspect. So so answer it how you want, and, and and I'll just ask the question, right? So when you have a platform technology, a lot of the questions that come up with entrepreneurs is, um, well, how do we pick our first um, our, our our first indication for use? I mean, how do we pick our first market? Is it truly just going after the largest one, or is there regulatory or reimbursement or clinical discussions that kind of cave into that? So. For you, I'm guessing maybe COVID skewed that a bit, but you know how how do you choose? Maybe not your first one, but how do you choose your second and third indication for use? Then, great question, and and we're still working through that. So I think that my answer is is real time. Um, I think it. I mean, historically, I've had this this um, situation as well. Both uh, before I was in diagnostics, I worked on the the therapeutic side. Um, I think, I think ultimately it comes down to what is your technology able to deliver? And so some technologies are incredible, but niche, or they're, they're not able to be flexible to handle a lot of different applications, but the one application they can handle is amazing, right? So it could be a, a a very specific cancer marker or something or a cardiovascular marker. And then sort of decided for you what you have to go after and then it's just executing and then diagnostics platforms um, generally speaking you develop instrumentation and then you fit the assays around it um, in some cases like uh, you know full genomic screen or something like that they're very specific applications but the nice thing for us is as i mentioned we are really limited by sample type we can handle uh, blood uh, nasal swab, sputum, urine, and, and all kinds of different applications. So the great thing is the sky's the limit. We could take it in any direction. Um, sometimes, though, when you sit down with a piece of paper where that's your directive, it's really hard to know where to get started. And for us, the reason we looked at applying our technology learnings and prowess to lateral flow was because of COVID. We saw the COVID tests that were coming out, which were fantastic. What the what what the you know diagnostic community has been able to do to ramp up to produce billions of these tests to return our lives to a semblance of, of norm normality should be heralded. 
Um, but there are deficiencies in the at-home tests. Um, and so we looked at that and said, this window where you are testing positive, or, or I'm sorry, you are positive, you're infectious, but you're testing negative on lateral flow, that creates issues, right, with infecting others. How could we get a, a lateral flow test that was um, accurate as PCR from the get-go? And so that was kind of the challenge we took. And lo and behold, we, we made a technology discovery, which we've now um, you know, put IP around. And, and so since we kind of started with COVID, we continued with COVID. The other reason for that, frankly, is there's still a high testing need for COVID. We'll see what happens in the fall. Um, and also the, the FDA still has the emergency use authorization. So it makes sense to take advantage of that um, pathway while you can. Um, what comes next after that is, uh, is a fun challenge. And I think it comes down to what are technology limitations or opportunities, and then where are there markets with high unmet needs? And that could be incredibly diverse where there are plenty of instances. There's actually good therapeutics, but the limitation to good healthcare is people not getting diagnosed. So that could be everything from tuberculosis in low resource areas to uh, sexually transmitted diseases where there's an embarrassment factor to getting diagnosed, or just pick the flu, where there's a practical limitation to all of us have had the flu, almost none of us have used a treatment for the flu, which has been around for 25 years. And the reason for that is um, not getting diagnosed early enough for it to matter. And I think those are the kind of low hanging fruit that has real impact. You know, if you get the flu, would you like to suffer for three days or five days? Um, three days sounds better. And the way to do that is to get on an antiviral like Tamiflu day zero. But to be able to do that, you need to diagnose yourself or someone needs to diagnose you and you need to get a prescription quickly. Because if you wait to day three, which almost all of us do, there's no point in doing it anymore. And so it's, it's those kinds of opportunities. Same with strep. Kid goes in the school nurse with a sore throat um, versus a just go home. And then you've got to set up a doctor appointment. And three days later, you get lab tests back. You got to do a culture. In less than 10 minutes, the school nurse can say, your child has this. And you then connect that from a test to treat strategy. Um, another angle that I love is... Um, do you have a bacterial infection or a viral infection? Just as a general screen, you go into a clinic, you got a fever, you know you're not feeling well. You know, physicians have difficult choices to make. They can collect your blood, do testing, and again, a couple of days later, get the results back. Yeah, it's bacterial, it's viral, it's a urinary tract infection, it's this. Um, but they're essentially posed with, I can prescribe nothing and wait to know the results and then definitively prescribe something, but then you suffer for two more days or they proactively prescribe antibiotics. And then two days later, find out there was no point in that you have a viral infection and we have huge antibiotic resistance problems. So it's just another way that you can better match the type of treatment as well as the rapidity of that treatment to, to better affect your health. And I think, you know, if nothing else has come out of COVID, I think people are more in tune with the opportunities and limitations of diagnostics in general. And I think people kind of like having a little bit more of a hand in 
understanding what's going on, working with their healthcare provider to um, affect and impact and their own health. Yeah, I, I <clears throat> so a couple things. Um, the the flu point, right? If if I had something that I could take the day I didn't feel, I felt slightly off, right? And I could take something and and know what it was that day. Uh, I would a hundred percent keep those in my house, right? Uh, because the difference between having a uh, a common cold for a couple of days and the flu is like drastic, right? So um, I, I think that's a great point. Bacterial versus viral, like that's a huge issue um, because uh, I think a lot of times doctors probably see repeat people who just come in and say, hey, I'm not feeling good. I need a pack, And it's like, yeah, okay, boom. They have one right and so and that's so that's an issue um now i so so i love those points um covid question for you is this was something i kind of saw play out right and and i was always of the mindset of like yeah guys i don't think this is going anywhere. So there's still a need for people to innovate in this space. But I think a lot of people were the opinion that, hey, COVID will be around for a few months and then uh, we're all done with it. We won't need all these diagnostics. We won't need all these ventilators. We won't need all of this. Was was there any point in time in this journey, right, where you where you were like, hey, maybe we should pivot out of COVID. Maybe it's not going to be around or maybe it's not, uh, there's going to be too many players in it. You know, did those conversations come up and maybe what was the discussion points like? Yeah, I think for us, um, it was a little unique just because the reason we discovered this technology was because of COVID and because all of this is so new. So I can imagine for a lot of, uh, my colleagues across diagnostics where they have existing platforms and had to decide, do we try to develop a COVID test to put onto our existing platform? Are we too late? Are we too early? Um, a good example of that. And actually my, so I've been with Senzo for about eight months. Uh, my, my previous company before that, um, we used our platform to develop an antibody test for COVID and developed a really good antibody test. Lots of people developed antibody tests, and as it as it played out, um, while I, I still think antibody tests are valuable in some ways, the market for that never developed. For us with Senzo and our, our Alpha Amplified Lateral Flow technology, um, at the end of the day, we had to pick something to be the um, the proof of principle all the way through to a finished product, all the way through to regulatory approvals to show that this technology was real and to build credibility for ourselves, for our investors, for potential partners, for the FDA, for, for the marketplace. You know, it's it's very much the first one's the hardest. And so, you know, we're a we're a relatively small group, resource limited. We were never going to pursue three or four products at once. So we were always going to pick one. And in some ways, it just made as much sense as anything else at being COVID. So it's kind of a nice position in that um, I never want to root for the pandemic to come back. So, um, you know, if, if commercial testing stays low, um, that's fine. We don't, you know, it's not a missed opportunity. We needed to do this for something. So if we hadn't picked COVID, we would have picked strep, right, or hepatitis. 
Um, so we look at this as our proof of principle product. Um, I still believe that there will be and should be COVID testing come next fall. And if we move to being endemic, I think responsible individuals and curious individuals are still going to want to know, hey, I don't feel I don't feel good, even though no one's forcing me to isolate. Maybe I should test and see if I have something and not go and send my kid to school or go to work and infect other individuals. Right. So we are moving into this sort of government forced decision making to back to how are you a reasonable citizen, right? And I think people will just be curious and hopefully responsible. And in that case, you're still going to want to do testing for COVID. Dwayne, you alluded to the the, the um, influenza piece. The next follow-on product to this, we're working on a, a an ALF triplex product, which is COVID plus flu plus RSV with that same idea of people are sick, they want to know what they have, and it'll be great to know you don't have COVID, but you'll still be sick. And so if we can then let them know that they have influenza or RSV instead, then they, they can take the, the reasonable steps to address that, whether it's a therapeutic or just self-isolating. And so, you know, all of this connects together. It's the same with sexually transmitted infections, right? Responsible right. person should want to know as much as they can about whatever's going on. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the basis of, of diagnostics. It's just knowledge. And then based on that, it's, you know, it's your cholesterol score. You can decide to do nothing with it, but it's good to know. And then you can modify behaviorally or, uh, you know, through therapeutics. And I think this, this fits in that same way. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I want to circle back to, to Senzo, but before we get too far away from it, what was your background before Senzo, right? Like what's, what's, what got you to this point where now you're ready to lead a, you know, diagnostic startup company? Yes. I mean, um, like a lot of people know, no, um, preconceived roadmap necessarily. I've always loved science. I've been in healthcare for 25 years. I have a biochemistry background, uh, an MBA. Uh, I started more on the pharmaceutical biotech side. Um, and then uh, when I was at Johnson & Johnson, kind of moved over from, from pharma into diagnostics and, and now been in diagnostics for 15 years. Uh, so started with a very large company central lab, big instrumentation, worldwide footprint. And that was great training to, to understand that, but there was no kind of financing or financial element. Um, I then joined a, a, a startup um, almost now 13 years ago and really grew that company from um, fairly small from a number of employees and kind of revenue standpoint to uh, 500 plus employees, 50 million plus in revenue, and lots and lots of financing rounds eventually resulting in, in going public. And so I, I learned so many lessons going through that of uh, what to do, what not to do, what I, would, what I would do differently if I had another chance and really, really enjoyed that journey. And so, uh, as I said, about a year ago, um, kind of came across Senzo and and love the technology and the people and really saw the opportunity there. And unfortunately they, they said the op opportunity uh, in me as well. And, um, you know, been happy to join and, and kind of um, work with another 
another startup to go on that journey. But I love that we have this platform and, and there's so many different places we can take this, which is exciting. It's always good to have many shots on goal because you will miss some and you will fail. Um, but it's, it's having that diverse plat- platform and ability to do that. And I think that's a messaging to our current staff as we expand and hire. It's a message to uh, uh, investors, our current investors and new investors and also partners. So, um, you know, we, we want to build a, a robust uh, diagnostics company that is improving healthcare by virtue of providing this uh, much better lateral flow test. And, and we want to bring some partners along the way, whether that's other diagnostics companies, retailers, mm-hmm. hospital groups, uh, you name it. So in, in, in your previous life, what did you take from, like, what were some of the highlights that you, you know, you look back and you're like, hey, the last time I did this, this is what we did. I need to incorporate that here, right? Um, and then there's probably things that you were like, oh, that was a gotcha moment. Don't do that again, right? So so, so from your previous life, you know, what, what, what are some of those highlights of things that, hey, you have to repeat this again and things that you're trying to avoid? Yes, um, I've certainly... Um tried to learn lessons over time and then incorporate those into not repeating uh, bad decisions or trying to replicate good decisions. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes you're successful in that. Sometimes you get lightning in a bottle and it's hard to do twice. Yeah. Sometimes you do your best to not recreate mistakes and you find yourself in the same spot. Um, you know, I think, I think it's about, um, it's different things, right? I think there's a whole whole bucket of, of learnings and how you grow your business and how you hire and how you create culture and how that's spread across different geographies. And now we have this whole aspect of, of work from home or are people in, in one place. So there's the whole, I think, how do you build a business, lead a business, develop good leaders, hire good leaders, um, you know, how much do you outsource? How much do you just try to build yourself? Um, there, there's that bucket. Then there's the partnering bucket of, um, you know, what do you turn over or out license uh, to other people who are well-established? And sometimes that is absolutely the right thing to do um, where you're trying to build credibility or uh, someone has all the infrastructure in place that you would need to build it's a better decision to partner, or maybe you do one thing in one geography, but a different thing in a different geography. So it's just, you know, figuring out that partnering strategy, whether that's a development partner, a manufacturing partner, or a commercial partner. And then the third piece is, is financing and, and it connects somewhat to the partnering piece as well. I mean, there's some companies that, um, you know, it's fairly rare, but there's some companies that never, do any equity financing, right? They they bootstrap, uh, yeah. they get lucky, they get grants, they get partnerships, and that's great. I mean, that's great for the people that hold the equity and don't, don't get diluted, but I think you have to be prepared to do all of those things. And then it's always better to have more choices about where the next million dollars is gonna come from and, and then being forced to pick something that's suboptimal. So, um, my experience with investors is it changes over time. Um, you tend to have 
smaller but more investors early as you're doing kind of friends and family and seed and high net worth investor uh, individuals and angels and then you move into more institutional investors and then certainly as you move through a going public stage things change completely again um you know i think you have to be genuine you have to tell a good story but you have to mean it and then you you have to deliver I think it's like a lot of things. You need to build trust over time. You tell someone you're going to do something and then you do it and then you tell them again and you do that one. And 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 that's how you build kind of the, the credibility with, with an investor base. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so in, in relation to equity financing and non-dilutive capital, you, you touched on it there, you know, I think depending on who you talk to, they're like, oh, well, yeah, there's there's plenty of grants available and and and, and this and that. But the problem too is, is timing, right? And and the timing of grant money um, is just slower. It just is, right? And so your timing of going to market matters. And I don't think I think sometimes people think, well, if I have a great technology, then the window's always open. And I think that's probably more rare than people expect. And 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 just from what I've seen, it doesn't matter how slick your technology is, your window is constantly opening and closing. And and uh, you've got to hit that right. Um, and so you know, I think just with non-dilutive capital, it is great um, for some people, and for others, that timing aspect could really um, you know hurt a company. And so. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought that piece up because it is a difficult decision to make at an early stage of, hey, do I go after angels or, or friends and family? What does that look like? Or do I go after Grant? Do I do, I do both? And how much do I put my eggs in one basket? So um, I think that's a difficult conversation that, that companies have to make at a very, very, very early stage, right? A lot of times we talk to entrepreneurs who are like, well, there's these VC groups and private equity groups and family offices. And, you know, they name off all these like conventional fundraising sources. But the problem a lot of times is, is most of those aren't getting involved in a seed round um, or a pre-seed round or, you know, these really early stages. So uh, it's, it's kind of difficult to pinpoint where you should go from there. Um, no, no, it's a great point. And I mean, the other thing I would say is, I mean, the easy answer is you should do it all. And that probably is the right recommendation. Then it just comes down to hours in the day and resources. And the thing about non-dilutive grant funding is it is slow getting an answer, sometimes slow funding. There's sometimes restrictions on it. You know, it's, there is always a bit of a, there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? So it sounds, it's, it's non-dilutive equity, but there's often strings attached. And right. those may be perfectly reasonable strings. But um, And then the other piece is to, to win a big grant, they're, they're very competitive. You have to do a really good job. It takes a lot of work to put a good grant application together. Yeah, And so it's not like, well, I don't have the, the time to do, to pursue equity funders. So I'll do grants instead. I mean, arguably it's just as much work. And so you just, you have to factor in the kind of effort to likelihood of success. And then what do you get from it? And again, I think probably 
Senzo has certainly taken a diversification strategy of we're pursuing equity funding, we're pursuing grants, and we're pursuing partnerships. Um, yep. Yeah. Uh, so you can hear me clicking around. This is a good plug for uh, episode 91. So this will be uh, five or six episodes before yours. It releases next week. Um, the episode is with Ashley Mooneyham. So if you're listening to this one, you should go back. If you're asking about non-dilutive funding and the timing, success rate, that kind of thing, Ashley works on a lot of that. And she was super transparent with success rate, timing, real timelines. I'm doing air quotes because that is also a thing that people probably need to realize with, with um, groups is, is there's the stock turnaround time and then there's what the real turnaround time is. And so um, she kind of demystifies all of that for us, which is really nice. Um, great. I'll check that out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. For you, it'll be released in two weeks, right? <laughs> People listen to your episode, it was released. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> right, right. So, uh, so where is like Senzo current date? How many employees um, did you, did you, I thought I remember talking about this. You just had closed a raise recently. Um, where, where, where is that all that stand? Yeah, so Senzo, I am U.S. based. Um, we are, you know, starting to put together our plans for building out the the U.S. business a little bit. But you know, we we sort of view ourselves as a uh, growing global business. But the, mm -hmm. the bulk of staff are located in in London, and we're we're under twenty people, um, mostly focused on R and D, uh, as you might imagine, as well as the quality, clinical, regulatory. So where we are is we have, uh, we've frozen the design of our, our first lateral flow product, the COVID okay. product. We are working our way through the process of, of CE marking that product, as well as starting clinical trials in uh, the May, June time period in the US. So we've had lots of good interactions with FDA. And so um, we're looking to bring our product to market in, in Europe and the US by the fall. And then- a fast, fast follow on with three, four or five other products, some of which I've mentioned, uh, like the triplex product, um, uh, sexually transmitted disease products, um, strep and some others. And we'll do that in a combination of, of, of doing the R&D and, and clinical and commercialization on our own, as well as signing up pro uh, uh, partners who, who may specifically say, Hey, we play in this space already, but there's a giant unmet need in hospital infections, and we've got a great PCR test. But what we hear from our customers, they love to augment that with a bedside lateral flow option. Um, or you're seeing more and more, you know, we're um, to some degree we've seen this during COVID, where um, you know offices don't necessarily want sick people inside, right? So there's there's this whole triaging element before you even get into um, a waiting room, right? And whether even in a clinic. And so how does that work where you may have a, um, a, a triage kind of screening test for a variety of things before you even meet with your healthcare provider? So, um, you know, that's really where we are with kind of the next phase of our tests. Um, from a financing standpoint, up until this point, we have... We've done um, seed rounds essentially, but we're we're in the midst of closing a 
a pre-Series A round, which will close in early May. So perhaps by the time this podcast is out, it'll be closed and there'll be more public information on that. But we're excited about that because it includes an institutional investor, a strategic investor, as well as uh, a reinvestment from uh, a number of our, our current investors. So it's a, it's a nice round, a uh, couple million dollars, and that gives us a really good runway to kind of uh, get through a lot of these uh, pivotal stages and steps and value creation events for us over the next six months. And then we'll see what happens during that time as far as non-dilutive funding partnerships, but the likely goal will then to be, uh, to be participating in uh, a much larger Series A investment um, in, in the September timeframe. Okay. So that, right. That's the timeline. Now, what I have certainly also learned is things always take longer than you think they will. And also always be open to and flexible about things coming out of left field. Yeah. Hopefully good things, sometimes bad things, but, uh, you never know. It's it, when you're a small company, um, you've got to remain flexible and able to pivot because you're you're so disadvantaged resource-wise that your one advantage is the lack of bureaucracy and being able to see yeah. an opportunity and quickly move towards it, which larger companies struggle with. So, uh, you know, that that's the plan as we sit here, uh, Dwayne, but uh, things can change. Okay. So a uh, couple things uh, I wrote down that I want to talk about. Um, naming of the rounds. How important was that for you and for the investors? Because um, uh, I necessarily didn't didn't realize this when I first um, when I first started this podcast, uh, even, and and that's just like by nature how I work. Like I'm just I try to break things down to like the simplest level, right? So for a naming round, I was like, yeah, I don't why does it matter? It should just be, what are you trying to do with that money? Right. And that's how it should be. But, and marketing people, you know, I, I start to make more friends and, and, and one of the co-founders of project MedTech who's much bigger into the marketing and perception. I was like, well, a lot of that perception matters. And I'm like, oh yeah. Okay. So now I've been getting educated on this constantly, but with, with the naming of rounds, it matters a ton. So I'm, I'm curious on what your, um, uh, experience has been with that? Because it sounds like you've probably had similar experiences because I've noticed what you've called each one of the things you just mentioned. <laughs> None of them were a series A. So kind of maybe walk through that a little bit. Yeah, great question. I I, I am certainly not the uh, arbiter on this. I'll give you my experience and my opinion. I think to some degree, the, the guys with the money kind of make the rules on this one. But um, <laughs> But I agree with you, it matters. It's funny because it matters in both directions. On one hand, you know, you don't want to have too many series, right? You start getting series D, E, F, then people are like, hmm. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, if you're not yet at a series A, you can be deemed too early, too risky, whatever that might be. I think the tricky part is, though, there's no at least as far as I understand, there's no consistency in what is what, right? Like a, a $10 million round for one company could not, could be seen to not meet the criteria of a series A for whatever reason, but for another company, it's a series C. 
right? And if you're a you're a small diagnostics company, you're probably raising a lot less than if you're a small biotech company, just because they need so much money to get through clinicals. So a biotech series A might be 50 million and our series A might be 10 million, but they're right. still all viewed as series A. So it is, I would say, amorphous. Um, mm-hmm. We actually, we have talked about this. We're still talking about it, what to call the round we're about to close. Um, <laughs> we seem pretty clear that the next round will be series A. This for us is kind of our second or third round. So is is it a pre-series A? Is it a series seed three? Um, yeah, I, at some point, I think it's probably, it feels like both semantics and people don't take it that seriously. But then if you don't, if you can't, if you're able to talk through your investment history with an investor, it doesn't matter at all what it's called. Right. But if someone's just left to look in like Crunchbase or something, and see what your name is and what the name of your round is, people will judge that. Right. right. Yeah. And there's so many, there's so many companies and, and most investors get so inundated with opportunities that that is sometimes the filter, right? So we've actually just had someone on who called um, essentially a bridge round or uh, a, a seed three or seed two round. They called it a series A1. Um, and then they're going to have a series A2, you know? So it's like, it's just funny, but right. people are trying to play that game of getting around the filters. Um, well, and I think some of that has been created by the VCs themselves because some, I mean, they are inundated. And so they have to draw a line for themselves of, we don't invest earlier than this, earlier than that. And then sometimes they'll use the nomenclature, like we'll never do earlier than series A. Yeah. Well, then if you want their money, you're gonna want to call whatever you're trying to do a Series A, so it fits right. fits into their box because right. you know it. For them, they as long as it's a Series A, they might invest a million or fifty million. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is a funny, funny semantics. I'm sure, I'm sure through like, uh, you know, I'm sure there is some definition somewhere of a standardization with within the venture capital community, but. Practically speaking, I'm not sure how much that gets adhered to. Right. Yep. No, it's good. Um, now, the other question I had is, what about coming in as you weren't a co-founder of the company, correct? So you were brought in to to lead the company. I'm assuming the co-founders are still involved in the company somewhere, right? So talk about that a little bit, because I think that's um, you know when it's when it's a co-founder that eventually that maybe was the ceo or president right and then eventually they realize hey you know what to get to the next step i'm not the right person right so we talk about that frequently on the podcast um and then we also talk about well what about when you're that person coming in right and now you're taking someone's baby and and helping take that to the next level and, and supporting in the growth of it so um what, what was that like? Was there hurdles? Was it clean? I mean, was did you feel weird even though it was like, you know, because then there's that aspect too where it's like, well, yeah, the people can make it as inclusive as you want and, and make you feel like you're part of the family. But there's still, no matter how much someone does, you still got to feel a little bit like, okay, I'm, I'm kind of the outsider coming in. So maybe walk through that a little bit. Yeah, I think that is, um, it's a great challenge for, um, as you said, any, I don't think it's just CEO, it could be CFO, it can be, you know, senior managers who come into kind of a, 
a business that had been run for a while or a long time by founders. And and I think you get the same thing with like family run businesses that have been around for 30 years and then they decide, okay, you know, for whatever reason need to bring in external management. I, so I've, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm still working on it at Senzo, right? So I've, it's only been eight months. My previous role was very much like this where I was brought in as president and CEO and they, they as a management team had been together for a long time. They had built something, you know, small, but really good. And um, I guess it comes down to building credibility and trust, not forcing it. And it's just, it's a human dynamic. I mean, I think it's a lot easier if the whole setup is mutually agreed, which is, is the case here at Senzo, which I just look at it as the founders needed a different resource and more resource. And that's me. And I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm adding to the team. It's not that I'm taking responsibilities or a role from someone else. It's that uh, as you grow, you need, in any case, you need more people doing more things and different things. And whether the original people were capable of that or not is sort of beside the point. If, if they recognize along with usually a, a board decision of some sort that, hey, we need some help here. Um, whether that's internally or maybe a, a skill set to reach external investors or partners or someone who's brought a product through regulatory agencies and launch. I think it's just like everything else. You bring people on that have skill sets you don't have, right? I'm, my skill set is not going to be the fi- founding scientist, right? So they, they've already got that one covered and right. they've laid amazing groundwork. Then you... you you get together and say, I need you, you need me. Now let's figure this out. And and for me, it's about just uh, building trust and credibility in both directions. And, um, you know, I, I, I think it's like a lot of things in life. I think 90% of the time it probably works just fine. But you tend to hear about the 10% of the time where it's, you know, something absolutely blows up for whatever reason. And there's clashing of of egos or style or whatever else but i you know i think i think again i think it's a little different the situation where founders for whatever reason by investors of the board are forced to do something Mm -hmm. um fortunately i haven't been in that situation but i can imagine that that's very difficult i think if it's an agreed hey we need to go out and find this person um, then once you find them and bring them in ostensibly you're you're going to be welcoming and then it's just about connecting and and building the rapport yeah yeah now there's um a lot of good books by daniel kahneman and amos traversky um i think the undoing project is the one that's written about them but they have a number of other books and and pretty much on how people make decisions and, and and one of the points is that people make a lot of decisions out of fear even though that might account for only like 10 percent or 20 percent of situations and is that the best way to make uh, there's a specific to financial decisions but but you're totally right i, I think that you know people hear about people hear about the 10 percent of things that could go wrong and then they base a lot of decisions off that, and that creates roadblocks for them to not do some particular thing. So, I think your your point there is well taken as well. Um, yeah, I, I have a nice message just to the right of my monitor that supports that, and is a good reminder for me every day, which is stop being afraid of what could go wrong and start being excited about what could go right. Yeah, hundred percent. 
yeah you know it's a, it's not always easy to do that but that is a good way to think about things especially in a in a startup environment mm -hmm. you, yeah you have to take risks to some degree um and and again leverage the assets you do have which include flexibility and quick decision making and, and taking risks that um, yep. allow you to outmaneuver your much bigger, well-established, well-resourced uh, potential competitors. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you're competing against other startups, right? For yeah. partners and investment and, and attention. Right. And so you do have to be, I think, bold to some degree. I think we're, it's easier to be bold if you're, you know, making software or uh, apparel or something like that, you're always kind of bound or should be bound by the, the mm -hmm. science and and kind of the rigor of, of healthcare and all of that. But I think you need to be um, bold in your ambitions and how you communicate it. Yeah, no, I, I like that. Um, is there anything else um, that we missed that you wanted to touch on? I can't think offhand. I mean, yeah. I think, um, you know, I think it will be very interesting. You know, let's all hope that we are kind of coming out of this pandemic. It's been two very weird years. Yeah. And I think it will. I think some of the things that have changed, we don't even realize yet that they've changed. And we'll look back on it in five years. But I do think, you know, whether that's working from home, right, or, you know, how company cultures get built and how people come together, or don't come together. Those are how we travel, all of those are, are a lot have been written on those, but I think there'll be a lot of more subtle nuanced things that when we get back to life that kind of are fundamentally changed. And I really do believe one of those is the way we think about diagnostics or perhaps think about them at all. Um, and, and it fits in nicely with kind of where technology was catching up with the problem. So I'm just really excited to see how this all plays out, uh, you know, independent of Senzo, but also inclusive of Senza. Yeah, awesome. All right, Jeremy, hang on for one minute. We'll chat offline here, but appreciate your time today. Uh, as always in the show notes, I'll have Jeremy's LinkedIn page off Senzo's website. So if you want to get a hold of Jeremy or the company, you can do so through the website or LinkedIn. Um, but Jeremy, thanks so much for your time. And um, yeah, thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks so much for the opportunity, Dwayne. Good speaking with you. Yep. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.